Our scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 8 through 15, chapter 7, verses 42 through 60, and chapter 8, verse 1. You can find it beginning on page 890 in the Pew Bibles. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of of freed men, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand... They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes, and then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stopped saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then Stephen spoke eloquently about the history of the Jewish people, starting with Abraham and Isaac to Joseph and to Moses. As he finished up, he said, Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died, and Saul approved of their killing him. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. In college, I was in a sorority. It was a lot of fun. 
I'm telling you, it was a lot of fun to be a part of a group, that group of ladies, living with them and going to the socials with the fraternities, taking the weekend trips and attending the meetings and even having the rehearsals for our annual Greek Sing competition. All of it was really good for me. The overly shy girl who arrived at Barton with very little confidence in herself it was good for me. But there was one aspect of being in a sorority that simply did not sit well with my conscience, and that was Rush. I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, but Rush is the time of year when ladies get to know the different sororities on campus. And when they seek to join a sorority on campus, and when the ladies of the sororities decide who was worthy to be a part of their group, made me sick to be a part of something that was so counter to my understanding of right and wrong. Every year when it came time to vote on who got invitations to join us, I voted for everyone. Even though only 12 out of the 50 people could be members of our sorority, I still voted for 50 people. I was forever annoying our chapter advisor, and every year before we voted, she would give a speech. And then she would give the speech periodically throughout the vote. Ladies, you can't vote for everyone. That's not how this works. And I knew that she was talking specifically to me, and I did it anyway. Well, one year, the chair of our Rush Committee was a young woman whom I felt had a prejudice against overweight people. She was very verbal about this, just ongoing in her life. And so when several overweight women who went through Rush didn't get invitations from us, I, had, I and a few of the others convinced ourselves that the chair must have fudged the votes. You see, we always voted with our heads down and our arms up, and so the only people that saw who voted for whom and counted the votes was the Rush chair and the chapter advisor. Well, we felt so indignant over the idea of her keeping those ladies out of our group because we were sure that they had gotten the votes. Well, how did we handle that indignation? How do we handle that situation? Did we go to her and ask her to show us the voting records? No. Did we take our concerns to the president or to the standards committee and share our concerns? No. No, what we did was we gossiped ourselves into a mob-like frenzy, and then we broke into her room and we stole her notebook with the records. That's what we did. And in the end, we found no evidence that the rush chair had done anything wrong, and she decided to leave the sorority because she felt so violated. We were so sure that an injustice had been done. And in our righteous zeal, we ended up being the perpetrators of injustice instead. We weren't the first people in history to seek justice by any means possible, though, were we? We weren't the only people in the world to know that someone had done something wrong and rationalized any and all behavior with the goal of making them face up to what they had done. And we won't be the last to have done it either. It was a nasty, nasty state of affairs what we did to our friend and sister. But to me, the worst part about the whole thing 
was that everything I did to make things right, quote-unquote, went against my Christian beliefs of right and wrong. I went against my own values because I believed she had done something so wrong, so egregious, that my behavior was validated, was righteous. It was wrong to take part in such nasty gossip. It was wrong to violate her space and to steal her belongings, especially without proof that she'd done anything wrong. But even if we did have proof, it would have been wrong. It was wrong to slander her the way that I did. It was wrong of me to hold such feelings of contempt for her in my heart. It was wrong whether she'd done what she was accused of or not. And in light of her innocence, my unjust behavior seemed that much more awful. Well, the people in our scripture today, the members of the synagogue of the freed men, they were absolutely positive that Stephen, an apostle, had been guilty of at least two of the Ten Commandments. They were so sure. We can find these commandments in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Well, the members of that synagogue were so positive that he was doing these things, and they were absolutely incensed about it. But they had no proof at least not enough proof that would allow Stephen to be convicted in the Jewish courts. So they could not justify punishment according to the rules of the temple. And to have proof, there had to be at least two witnesses to say that they saw and heard Stephen teaching people about a false god, Jesus, and speaking out against Moses, their greatest prophet, and speaking out against God. So they conspired with people to lie to the council about what they had heard, to give false witness, if you will. And by, just to be clear, when I say that Jesus was the false god, the Jewish people who did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah or the Son of God believed, and they're right, if Jesus wasn't the Son of God, then he was being blasphemous to claim to be the Son of God. So either he was the Son of God, or he was a blasphemer. Either the apostles were blasphemers, or they were proclaiming the Son of God. Depended on what you believe, the Jews legitimately believed that Jesus was not the Son of God. Therefore, the apostles were guilty of blasphemy. Except that they had no proof. So they conspired with the people to lie to the council about what they heard, to give false witness. They also said, you know, to really sell their conviction that Stephen was dangerous, that they heard Stephen threaten the temple itself, that he had threatened to destroy the temple of God or that Jesus would destroy the temple of God. And even though Stephen had done no such thing, he was guilty only of making pious people uncomfortable by pointing out their own wrongdoings against Jesus. They raged against him and illegally stoned him to death outside the Jerusalem walls. Consequently, they broke two commandments because they were so angry at Stephen for supposedly breaking two other commandments. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, and you shall not murder. Oh, the evil of such an act, right? 
How terrible of those hypocritical Jews to do something like that. And not only was Stephen sinned against, but the frenzy also created to make his death happen went on to fuel a citywide persecution of all the Christians in Jerusalem. They were so revved up by their righteous indignation that they started hunting down all of the other Christians, especially the apostles, forcing them to leave the city. Well, we see this happening in the Christian church today as well, don't we? At least I see it. How often do we see Christians caught up in their convictions about a law stated by Paul, who ironically was the one in charge of the Christian persecution that followed Stephen's death? So people are so convicted by laws that Paul speaks that they completely ignore the second most important commandment given by Jesus himself. How often do we see Christians persecute others for their sinfulness while they themselves are guilty of being cruel and unloving to their neighbors? How common is it today to see quote-unquote Christian politicians, who I see as being very similar to the Jewish council in our scripture, persecuting specific groups of people and stirring up the populace to make their persecutions possible? All in the name of the one who commanded us to love all people as we love ourselves. And just as the Jerusalem Christians had to flee Jerusalem for their own safety, just as my sorority sister felt compelled to leave the sorority, Christians today are fleeing the church for their own safety as well. But then let's be honest. It's not just the so-called far right that is guilty of such sins, is it? No people on the so-called left are equally guilty because it is so easy for them to look at all of those unloving Christians and to justify hate in their hearts for them. And whether we consider ourselves conservative or liberal or somewhere in the middle, it is just too easy to have contempt for Christians whom we feel are wrong. Whoever they are. It's so easy to look at them and harbor all kinds of mean and terrible thoughts about them, which then makes us feel just as we attack them, either behind their backs or in person, or most frequently on social media. Just like those members of the synagogue of freed men felt righteous in their actions, how often do we get caught up in our righteous indignation and start to believe that it's okay to achieve our righteous goals by any means necessary? How often do we convince ourselves that the end justifies the means? For those of you who aren't aware of ethical theories, and let's be honest, I think that's almost everyone because very few people are really that nerdy, right? So for those of you who are, are not familiar with ethical theories, there is a theory called consequentialism. In its purest form, consequentialism holds that the moral quality of an action is completely determined by its consequences, meaning According to consequentialist the, the, uh, theory, the end justifies the means in every situation, in all circumstances. The end justifies the way you achieve that end. 
Any action that goes into play in order to achieve that goal is justified if the end result is just. This is the idea that as long as the end result of an action is good, it does not matter what you do to achieve that goal. So, by that reasoning, it is okay to beat or torture someone to get them to confess to murder. It's okay to cheat on a test if it gets you an A, because after all, then it will help you get into college, which will then help you get a good job later in life. So that one indiscretion ultimately helps your whole life, right? The ends justify the means reasoning leads people to convince themselves that it's okay to oppress one group of people in order to empower another group of superior people. It leads people to feel free to be cruel and nasty to others on the internet if it will shut them up and keep them from saying things that they perceive as wrong in the future. Or they could say whatever they want on the internet if it will convince someone to turn to the right path, whatever that is. It rationalizes cruel practices in animal testing if it means that a good new drug is developed. It rationalizes certain practices in war that are condemned by just war theory. For example, killing innocent civilians in order to also kill the enemy and win the war. I want you to think about Hiroshima. It leads people to spread lies on the internet in order to sway the masses in a direction that they believe is right. It leads people to feel contempt for other races or tribes and to support laws that empower that disempower other races or tribes in order to empower their own race or tribe, thus giving them advantages to improve the lives of their families or children at the expense of other people's families and children. It justifies a group of young women to break into a girl's dorm room and steal her belongings because we believed we were defending overweight girls. It justifies Christians to be cruel to homosexuals, including their own children, because they've convinced themselves that their tough love will ultimately save their souls. It justifies governments to take away parental rights because they believe that they're protecting trans children from abusive medical practices. It justifies governments to strip women of access to necessary health care, like terminating an ectopic pregnancy, which would save the mother's life in order to save the lives of numerous other viable fetuses. And it justifies groups to break commandments to punish other people for breaking other commandments first. Now, I'm very aware that I sound like I'm preaching politics here, but I assure you I am not. What I'm preaching is the gospel. I can't help it if the gospel sounds political at times. I also can't help it if some politicians use the Christian faith and some of its basic concepts to gain power in our political system. That, by the way, is an example of consequentialism. But in three of the four Gospels, Jesus said that the two most important Jewish commandments were to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The first one comes from Deuteronomy. The second commandment comes from Leviticus. 
And then in one of the Gospels, he was asked, who is my neighbor? And he told the story of the Good Samaritan, a man from a supposedly sinful, unclean, and immoral group who went out of his way to be kind and loving to his enemy. That, my friends, is not an ends-justify-the-means philosophy, is it? No, it is a philosophy that promotes self-sacrifice for the good of another, simply because it's the right thing to do, even if that person seems to be against you and your faith. The members of the synagogue of freed men who lied to condemn Stephen believed that their mission was righteous because they saw Stephen as a threat to their faith and to their way of life. And so they betrayed their own values, the very commandments that they believed Stephen broke, in order to protect the faith. It's the same thing that Christians are doing today. In the name of defending the faith, we are tempted to betray the very Savior on which that faith is built. But Jesus calls us to be better than that, doesn't he? God calls us to be righteous in every way, not just some. Jesus says that we must seek justice by being just, not by being unjust. See, I see this example set for us by the leaders of the civil rights movement in the 60s and the 70s, who trained themselves and their followers not to respond to violence with violence, but rather with peace, nonviolent resistance. We are also to humbly ask God to guide our every action and not make the mistake that we know what's right. Because if we are doing God's will, all of our actions will line up with Jesus' teachings and actions. And I want to highlight this. If we're interpreting Paul and other writers of the New Testament in a way that justifies being unkind or unloving and unjust to another human being, then we have failed to interpret it through the lens of Jesus and his gospel. You see, we are called to give grace to our fellow human beings, just as Jesus gives grace to us. We are called to go against the instinct to do anything that we can to achieve a goal, even if the goal is righteous. We are called to be like Christ in all aspects of our lives. We are called to love, no matter what. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.